Hey everyone, I'm your host Tom Shaughnessy and welcome back to Chain Reaction, a research-driven podcast that's a part of Delphi Digital. If you're not on Delphi's research portal, you're missing out on the critical analysis read by the top minds in the crypto space, so be sure to check it out. One quick housekeeping item, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. I may personally hold tokens mentioned on the podcast and you can view our show notes below for our complete disclosures. With that, let's jump into the episode. Hey guys, I wanted to tell you about our new sponsor, Crypto.com. Crypto.com's exchange is a rapidly growing trading venue with a strong retail flow. Top institutions can receive a credit line and highly competitive maker-taker fees. Their platform is robust, secure, and compliant. You can get started trading today on the Crypto.com exchange. And to get in touch with their institutional sales team, visit bit.ly slash CryptoDelphi now or click the link in the show notes. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Chain Reaction. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy. Today, I have on Eric Chen, who's the founder of Injective Protocol, which is a fully decentralized layer two derivatives exchange powering cross-chain trading and DeFi. Eric, how's it going? Hey, how's it going? It's good, man. It's good to, uh, it's good to have you on. How's everything going? Uh, it's been great. Uh, right now, I'm in New York. Uh, generally, the weather's uh, getting kind of cold. Yeah, man, you got to finally turn the heat on now. Kind of, it's like change of seasons. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of wearing like a super puffy jacket in the office as well. Oh God, hate to hate to see it, but you got to do it. But Eric, tell us uh, tell us about yourself, man. Where'd you get started? How'd you get involved with crypto? What's your story? Yeah, so basically, I kind of got involved in crypto. Uh, there, there's really two stages. The first stage is me learning more about uh, blockchain or, or or back then just Bitcoin. Uh, I think that was. I would say during towards the end of high school where Bitcoin just started coming around and I built like a pretty beefy computer. So I was thinking like, hey, maybe I could earn some additional uh, money through the idle resources of, uh, of computation power. And that's really when I started touching on Bitcoin because people were talking about that you can earn Bitcoin through mining on your uh, computer. But obviously, uh, even for what I built back then, it's still uh, not enough to mine like a full Bitcoin for a year. Uh, so that was like, was kind of like the first time I heard about Bitcoin. But afterwards, uh, I would say around middle of college, uh, that's when I started to get really into Ethereum development and just learning about all the new consensuses, I guess, uh, coming out. And really, there was also like a lab uh, in our school called NYU Blockchain Lab uh, with you know uh, this professor called Joe Bono who really who who was really involved within uh, Zcash research, and I think he still advises Filecoin and. Uh, Algorand, I believe. And he had this kind of like a weekly reading group where he walked through a lot of uh, white papers and research papers back then. And that's when I started t- touching on a lot of uh, really interesting concepts like uh, selfish mining, like um, uh, Definity's uh, consensus, uh, and just in general, a lot of really interesting signature schemes that are currently used in the blockchain today, like BLS. And then, yeah, so, so after that point, it's really uh, diving deep into the rabbit hole. I, I did. Uh, I did work as a product manager for a startup for a while, and then later on joined a fund, uh, working mainly on you know uh, some of the market neutral strategies and here and there some in- uh, venture investments. Uh, and then actually the fund started transitioning into crypto as well, so it gave me a great uh, opportunity to start looking into you know the space uh, even more. 
And kind of like uh, outside of the job, I used to go to hackathons a lot. I think that was like a great experience for me to kind of get a sense of where space stands, uh, how to de uh, how the developer community is. Because uh, in my opinion, uh, when you look at Ethereum, uh, GitHub, like especially for Gaff or like the Bitcoin core, uh, it's extremely active and it's probably the most active amongst most of the open source repos. Don't quote me on it because I might be completely wrong on this. So I really wanted to get a sense of, you know, uh, where the space was going back then. And it turns out that basically it's extremely exciting. Uh, I went to, I remember like MIT Bitcoin Hackathon and back then everyone is so easy to reach. You don't have to, you know, wear a mask, keep socially distant. But well, basically I kind of like drank the Kool-Aid and then I remember Juan Bennett like spending like uh, 30 minutes kind of really pitching us the vision for Falcoin and uh, IPFS. And that's when we kind of realized that, you know, uh, the crypto space isn't just blockchain. Uh, it's not just, you know, like a UTXO based peer-to-peer -peer transfer. There's also a lot more possibilities uh, like FPF, IPFS, like, uh, you know, Ethereum. So yeah, yeah. After that, basically uh, started doing a lot more research on the space, uh, started, you know, looking into a lot of research that our professor was working on, like a verifiable delay function. And basically after a certain point, we kind of realized that there's a huge need for a decentralized exchange, especially I remember back then uh, as a trader, there were a lot of, I would say, unfairness for interacting with selected exchanges. I wouldn't want to name who. So even though like I, I understood completely back then that it's almost impossible to build you know, a standard exchange model uh, and basically migrate it from centralized stack to decentralized stack, but it was kind of the primary drive for me to uh, start really looking into it and seeing if there are remedies to it. Uh, you know, like, because one of the futures that I envision is that everyone communicates in a pure, uh, fully peer-to-peer -peer way. Um, because essentially after, uh, after kind of interacting with so many of these like centralized stacks, so many failures, so many censorships, and like being randomly blocked for a lot of different reasons, um, I honestly back then just kind of got tired of it. And especially for an exchange where someone can have a, like a whitelist IP back then uh, and just get like the trading edge against everyone, it was just extremely unfair. So that was kind of like the primary drive for me to start looking into DEXs. And yeah, Eric, I, uh, flash not, forward to today. Not to interrupt um, you, but before I forget, I just think it's amazing that, and I'm jealous that you had a professor that was doing white paper reads in college. I my college wasn't even close <laughs> to that. Yeah, um, I think back then it was just super interesting because it was just, I remember it was just like 10 people and then sometimes Macarello would come in uh, uh, from time to time. Um, obviously, I think right now, I haven't checked the email list uh, recently, but I think uh, the, the white paper reading session kind of stopped. But yeah, it's just a bunch of uh, PhD students, I remember, which is like super interested in crypto. And so they decided to start a reading group. That's that's awesome, man. Yeah, it's great that you were able to get a taste like so early on. And so I guess the, you know, the question for you is that I think a lot of people see derivatives and exchange and they, you know, a lot of people on the retail side really just don't know why we need these different products, what they actually do. You guys are focused on perpetual swaps, contracts for difference, and, and I think you have a couple other products out there. Can you kind of explain why retail institutional traders need derivatives in this space and ultimately what you guys offer? Yeah, absolutely. So in a sense, derivative, uh, you can understand it from two aspects. Uh, number one is the replication of the underlying uh, with some sort of uh, financial engineering or transformation that turns a, the underlying into something that's a lot more flexible. For example, uh, if we want to trade Amazon stock, 
Uh, there's only so many ways we can go about buying and selling it uh, on the spot uh, on the spot market. But when you start building derivative product on top of it, especially when you try to get involved with options and stuff like that, it becomes a lot more flexible. You can go leverage on it. Uh, you can bet on the volatility, it's spread. So there's a lot more hedging strategies and there's a, uh, you kind of like essentially are creating a bespoke product for a niche set of or bespoke set of traders needs, or sometimes uh, extremely general, like uh, the perpetual software Bitcoin, which is probably the, one of the most popular market within crypto right now. So basically for derivatives, and uh, uh, we have a focus on uh, CFDs, which is just in general, like kind of like a template uh, expired future plus, you know, a interest rate funding rate. And also PERP, which is which has a lot more flexibility when it comes to manipulating the funding rate. We decided to go about these two markets because number one is that uh, PERP is actually a pretty relatively interesting innovation uh, that's found in crypto and not that much in a traditional market. So it being one of the most popular uh, derivative markets in crypto kind of uh, create this baseline for how a derivative market should look like and what a trader expects. So, um, you know, if I'm a very, very novice trader and I want to gain a leverage position, um, I would say a year, from, a year ago, uh, I would immediately think of FitMEX. I wouldn't think of margin trading. I wouldn't think of, you know, going on under exchanges and kind of uh, uh, borrowing capital to uh, 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 go on leverage. I would just go on BitMEX and press the 2x button. So, yeah, so I think generally derivatives such, uh, have cemented such a strong, you know, foundation within the crypto space. And obviously it's growing extremely rapidly given to, to just how much flexibility a derivative, uh, derivative markets have that I would say that it's going to be the future of uh, just in general crypto exchange, because especially within a uh, DeFi space where trading of the underlying is so expensive and slow, when you kind of, first of all, when you scale it and when you scale it to uh, a derivative platform where the underlying isn't being touched as much, it's honestly uh, creates a lot better uh, liquidity outlet uh, than, you know, the uh, general market as a whole. Interesting. Yeah. No, I, I, it's funny that people have moved Bitmax so quickly. So I guess the perpetual swap, I think a lot of people are, are somewhat aware of, right? So you're basically mimicking margin trading, but no expiration or settlement. But the contract for difference that you guys have, I don't know if people really understand that as well. It's, it's kind of the first time I'm obviously hearing about it, unless it has another name. So can you kind of explain what that is again? Yeah, um, CFD is honestly pretty similar with um, uh, with perpetual. The reason why we kind of use the CFD term is actually because Uma kind of created this uh, 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 paper called the Bitdex, uh, which they basically outline what a decentralized, optimistic CFD would look like. And so, um, generally, CFD uh, in our case, in our implementation, it will be more justified to call it as like a uh, expiry future or just in general like a futures. But we kind of want to do like the uh, uh, we kind of want to follow the terminology in general and just call it a CFD so that people kind of have an idea. But I'm guessing that was uh, not necessarily the best idea because, um, uh, like you just said, you you probably haven't heard of a CFD just yet. Yeah, no, it's it's helpful. I mean, it's cool that you guys have great docs on your site too that that help kind of explain all this. And I guess for the focus for you guys, is it on the institutional crowd or is it on the retail crowd? Yeah, so basically we try to cover both. Um, we see a lot of needs for uh, institutionals to hedge either hedge their position. Uh, sometimes, you know, for venture uh, for venture funds, 
maybe it, it might be going a little bit against their ethos, but some of them might want to hedge their uh, locked up tokens uh, uh, during the initial launch uh, of a crypto project. Um, or, you know, like institutional traders who just want to uh, market make or uh, provide liquidity for a certain market. So I think really what we're building is a platform where essentially there's always going to, uh, there's always going to be a uh, more retail focused angle to it uh, for every single market. And there's also like an institutional, I wouldn't say demand, but incentive to participate in it. A really good example uh, that I can think of is a, a yield tracking derivative. So we actually got this from a uh, derivative market competition. So I actually won the first place as well. Um, essentially, you replicate the return, assuming you put, let's say, $1 into like a compound lending pool or some of the other lending pools. And essentially, you track the return of this, uh, uh, this $1 as it goes over time. So generally, how a market maker would do it is that um, they would kind of replicate the, uh, the the long side and just take on the short side within that derivative market. And of course, they can also apply a certain premium for doing that because there's also a liquidity premium. And essentially, the, the upside for retail buyers is that they can interact with uh, these lending pools and gain the exposure from it uh, without ever have to uh, having to be on Ethereum, paying for expensive gas, um, or liquidating you know the farm tokens. And another really cool part, I'm not sure uh, if people should actually implement this uh, because it's not well tested yet, but theoretically you could go leverage on this lending pool. So you see, you essentially get a uh, leveraged uh, um, interest. That's interesting. And I guess I'm just trying to think through this. Like I, I haven't spent as much time on options in my career, but what are you competing with with other platforms? Like when you go up against FTX, are you competing for liquidity or is it UI or is it the pricing of the perpetuals, like how exactly do you like judge competition there and what are you competing for? Yeah, I would say generally we compete for diversity. Um, there's a lot of products that a decentralized uh, ecosystem can do, whereas a centralized ecosystem cannot. Um, obviously, we've seen in the Bitmax case is that if you don't enforce KYC on users um, as a centralized uh, derivative exchange, uh, you're going to have a lot of trouble, to say the least. So it kind of made us realize that obviously DeFi needs to be compliant. But within the scope of uh, being fully decentralized, there's a lot more things that you can experiment with, uh, especially given, uh, given us being like a smaller market. Uh, a lot of things we can test with um, that a lot of centralized exchanges cannot. And obviously, by, keeping, uh, by staying nimble um, uh, within this market, we can, all, uh, we can actually find and innovate a lot more than a lot of these bigger shops. That's cool. And by diversity, do you mean like the number of assets <laughs> that you have derivatives on or... Would this be more of pricing and, and timeframes? I, I assuming not timeframes because there's no expiration, but interested to get your take there. Oh, actually we do. So this is what I kind of touched on for the CFD. Um, so we, we actually can have quarterly and uh, kind of expiry futures in general. Uh, so, so just to correct a little bit on that point. So there are two ways for us to go about this. Number one is that we actually don't launch the market ourselves. We basically create this protocol and this uh, to, to build up this fundamental ecosystem for people to create a protocol on top of. And so it, uh, it's highly parameterizable to create a new market as long as you implement the Oracle interface and also specify that some of the global uh, parameters, you can basically launch a derivative market with an Oracle intact. And obviously, that's just step one. You have to create, uh, you have to provide enough liquidity. You might have to see the insurance pool. So in terms of uh, uh, flexibility and diversity, I really mean that 
basically there's a lot more possibilities because essentially we're trying to go for a uniswap with derivative markets uh, but we also want to curate it properly so that you know like the best quality and arguably the safest uh, derivative markets are being exposed to the general user um, we also want to make sure that all these derivative markets are being uh, are kind of discoverable by everyone as well Got it. okay that makes sense hey guys i wanted to tell you about our new sponsor crypto.com Crypto.com's exchange is a rapidly growing trading venue with a strong retail flow. Top institutions can receive a credit line and highly competitive maker-taker fees. Their platform is robust, secure, and compliant. You can get started trading today on the Crypto.com exchange. And to get in touch with their institutional sales team, visit bit.ly slash crypto Delphi now or click the link in the show notes. Now back to our show. Just the current status before we get into the architecture, because I think your architecture is one of your key selling points, but what's the status of uh, your protocol today? Yeah, so we're actually launching our testnet, I would say a week from now. And Exciting. very soon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, by the time I think this comes out, our testnet might be out or... It d- really depends how fast the editors, but hopefully it's good timing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but- yeah. But no, it's yeah. exciting. Yeah, it's, uh, you guys have been working on this for quite a while, right? Yeah. Um, so we started working on, uh, on it around, I would say, end of 2018. So that would uh, actually mark around two years. Yeah, two years as of today. And so we actually had a different, uh, we, we had a pretty interesting uh, evolution of product. We didn't have this kind of like vertical stack in the beginning. We basically focused on building a decentralized relayer on top of Xerox on day one. Because back then, a really key problem we were trying to solve is kind of transaction ordering without having to involve gas. Um, basically, uh, with gas, obviously, there's, there comes gas option, minor extractable value, and just front running in general. If you, if you can find our white paper from back in the day, but it was basically talking about utilization of VDF to uh, resolve all the interblock conflicts of, of transactions and to resolve any type of like, uh, uh, create like a fair mechanism to resolve any type of collision and uh, potential firm running. So that's really how we started off with. Uh, we built it for a while and then we kind of realized even the settlement layer needs to be scaled or else uh, for an order book, it's just extremely difficult to survive. So that's when we went about, you know, moving off the settlement layer onto our own chain as well. Um, I would say we started on that around November of last year. So 2019. and that's when we start really, you know, digging into the uh, uh, Cosmos ecosystem, kind of working on how exactly can we transfer from Ethereum uh, safely and securely without having, you know, POA bridges and stuff like that. And that's also when we started to uh, work on integrating uh, the EVM zone or even module uh, within our chain. And I would say around uh, June, yeah, around June uh, uh, this year, we finished uh, pretty much building the basic infrastructure and we had this presumably a robust uh, spot market uh, infrastructure where it's directly connected to Ethereum, uh, especially on a consensus level, but it's also co- uh, compatible for crushing tra- uh, trading in the future. And we kind of realized that, you know, like taking a snapshot of the space, we saw the rise of FTX, we saw the rise of, you know, Binance Futures and kind of the degradation of the spot market uh, relative to the futures. And we know that, uh, you know, just in general, futures volume uh, is much higher than spot volume these days for one market. And it's effectively more, more profitable for exchanges as well. So there's a lot of resources pouring into it. So we kind of saw this trend kind of coming up 
during uh, uh, kind of in like the beginning of it. And we decided to uh, kind of migrate that to DeFi stack as well, because we also saw how well Uniswap did it for uh, spot market. Um, so this is really kind of where we landed. So we, we kind of finished the uh, futures uh, uh, contracts, I would say pretty quickly in around August. And uh, we've just been, uh, you know, optimizing our chain ever since, uh, ever since then. That's awesome, man. Yeah, it sounds like you guys were nimble and had a like a clear eye on the space and kind of moved with it. That's that's great to hear that you guys innovated so quickly. And so basically, what you said though is you guys have an implementation of the EVM on top of Cosmos's SDK. Is that correct? Um, I wouldn't say that we implemented EVM ourselves. It's just that we integrated the EVM the the, the EVM onto our chain. Got it. Okay. So, so yeah, that's my mistake. So, yeah. Um, so, so basically there's like two components. There's like the chain itself and there's also like a kind of like an EVM RPC where we can take in transaction inside of EVM and outside of EVM. Got it. Okay. But so on your architecture though, you guys are pretty unique though, that you have your own chain, right? Yeah. So basically we are still Cosmos based. Um, uh, the, the general consensus is still based on Cosmos, but we've done a lot of, uh, relatively speaking, customization over time and really modified a consensus uh, here and there to kind of uh, fit in uh, uh, fit in the VDF transaction ordering mechanism. And so kind of what people see right now is just uh, in general, uh, we have this module for a decentralized order book. We have this module for EVM. And on top of the EVM is really a pretty robust kind of uh, execution environment that scales uh, Ethereum off of the main chain. Got it. And Sorry, can you go into the scalability for a bit? Like, how, how are you actually achieving the scalability? Is it because of your own chain or is it because of what's built on top? Yeah, um, so it's mainly because of our own chain. Uh, we uh, we generally uh, kind of set like a parameter of uh, one second block time. And that's obviously because of proof of stake. It has a lot, uh, relatively less overhead and uh, uh, block time requirement than proof of work. This is just a general Cosmos consensus. Got it. Okay, so... I guess this is a good segue into your token. So I guess the token itself is used for proof of stake to secure your actual chain. Is it also, is that right? And then I guess the second question for you, is it used within the derivatives exchange itself at all? Or is it simply for kind of the proof of stake aspect of your chain? Yeah, so there's actually quite a few aspects to it. And the, the general initiative for a token is that we wanted to use it. We want to use it to power uh, the entire greater, uh, greater ecosystem. We want to make sure that the token is utilized and the value is accrued back to the token uh, throughout every single layer of the stack. So obviously in the most base layer, we have the proof of stake uh, um, security component, which essentially allows you to generate block time, uh, sorry, block rewards. And obviously the layer higher than that is um, the governance uh, module within uh, uh, the governance contracts within the EVM, which allows you to vote with the, uh, uh, with the, our native token to kind of govern most of the contract upgrades and also most of the uh, implementations and uh, changes or any type of uh, key variable changes uh, within the scope of the EVM. And so one of, pro- one of the problems we actually ran into back, uh, uh, back then was that uh, we were going to follow like a compound governance uh, model. Essentially, you lock up a token and you pass a certain threshold within three days and the vote is passed. But a big problem is mainly the staking derivative issue, which basically a lot of tokens can be locked up within the proof of stake consensus. And obviously, if there's a huge governance proposal coming up that could uh, you know, be uh, mobilizing everyone to participate, then uh, our chain is kind of just uh, up for grabs in that sense. 
So we kind of create this uh, staking derivative where essentially it's a synthetic representation of a stake token. Obviously, it's exchangeable one-to-one. So this way you can still participate in a governance and the vote uh, won't be uh, manipulated in any way uh, through the synthetic uh, asset. And so that, that's a pretty interesting point that we created in order to kind of reconcile with, uh, uh, with the EVM modules versus like the core chain module. That's interesting. Yeah. So, so net your tokens kind of used for staking and then 60% of your exchange fees are, I think, bind burned and then participate in governance. And then I guess when, when you're getting into it, how exactly will the process be for token holders to like take action? Like, you know, propose new listings, exchange parameters, upgrades, like how exactly do you envision that going? Is it kind of uh, in a form that you guys create or are you going to use like a DAO or how does that work? Yeah, so we're actually working on the front-end interface for it. Um, we haven't really have a very clear idea on, you know, specifically how to design the uh, user experience for interacting with the governance. But uh, just in general, we try to keep the uh, voting process uh, extremely open. So essentially, once you pass a certain threshold uh, for any type of upgradable contract, um, then that, uh, that contract can be replaced once the vote is passed. Um, this is just in general, like, for example, if you want to change a key variable, uh, you don't actually, it's not that easy to actually just change selected variables unless we really bake into the contract. Uh, but it, it will be much easier if we just upgrade, the, uh, basically switch the entire contract and upgrade it. But the only, del- uh, the only delta being the uh, key variables. Interesting. And all right, cool. So Eric, I got your, your story and injective. It's super interesting. I'd like to switch for a little bit just to kind of your vision for the space. I mean, we kind of saw BitMEX run into issues. There's obviously a lot of competitors here like FTX and Deribit, Bybit, whatever. But I mean, that's also good because it demonstrates that the space is active. I guess, how do you envision though that space kind of evolving? Because you guys are like fully decentralized, but the question is also, are people going to feel comfortable using a decentralized exchange with all the KYC things going on? I guess, where do you think the, the space moves in the battle between like CFI and DeFi for derivatives? Yeah, in my opinion, I think that the, the, uh, the long-term trend is always going to be moving towards DeFi. Uh, we've seen kind of centralized stacks decoupling into decentralized stacks. A great example being that Uniswap volume just passed Coinbase. I think everyone's very excited about that. But in terms of the short-term trend, I would say that derivative is probably one of the most uh, demanding uh, in terms of throughput, speed, and infrastructure compared to any other type of uh, exchange. So obviously, the number of uh, uh, you know requests uh, for a derivative market, let's say uh, BTC USDT, I would assume is much higher than uh, any type of arbitrary spot market within the crypto space. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So so I think at the end of the day, this is really kind of uh, it really comes down to two questions: Will there be a fundamental innovation uh, on the model of exchange within a decentralized stack? that can basically create a much more efficient, uh, you know, uh, interaction kind of capital allocation compared to a centralized stack. So obviously a great example we see this is uh, Uniswap implementing the AMM model, and that's a much more efficient and much more suitable uh, implementation of a decentralized exchange for spot markets. So if there is such one for a derivative market and it can deliver comparable or maybe even better liquidity than, uh, you know, centralized, uh, central limit order books, then, you know, like 
I would say that this is going to be a fundamental innovation and the centralized stack would be extremely difficult um, to overcome after that. But yeah, no, we'll see. That's fair. That's a good point. Yeah. And I, I read one of your Medium posts. It was funny. It was it was talking about you and your co-founders, like, uh, you know, history in the space. And it was funny. The bullets are like, you know, you guys got wrongfully banned from Coinbase and, you know, you suffered <laughs> socialized losses and KYC issues and server outages and, you know, un- being unfairly liquidated. So like, you kind of point out like what traders run into in the space as issues. I, I guess the question for you though is like, why hasn't this been built before? Is it that there's not enough liquidity? Is it that you know founders are afraid to decentralize an exchange, or is it because of transaction throughput on layer ones? Like, why don't why haven't we had an injective you know two years ago? Yeah, I think that's kind of like the same reason why we didn't have a Uniswap two years ago as well. Basically, back then this. Uh, uh, um, if we were to do on-chain settlement, it's just extremely slow. And I don't think back then a lot of uh, people building a decentralized exchange on top of Ethereum with a centralized limit order book realized that the, in order for a market maker to really market make properly, you need a very fast trade turnover rate. And even though the order book might update in a centralized way very quickly, but the actual settlement and also kind of arbing between uh, the exchanges and also reestablishing positions can't be slow as well. So I think that's one of the reasons why, just in general, uh, DEXs with central uh, central limit order book didn't work as well, um, especially during 2018 and up towards 2019. And that's why, you know, um, kind of like AMMs like uh, Uniswap and I guess recently Dodo uh, uh, did a really good job of is that essentially they kind of create this, uh, cons- uh, uh, this curve of liquidity where there's always a price for any quantity. So, so I think... That's really what's, yeah. That that's really what's uh, innovative about the DeFi space. It's just that, basically, if you try to directly migrate uh, what's uh, sitting on a centralized stack onto DeFi, it probably wouldn't work. Uh, so what you have to do is that you ha- really have to redesign and rethink about, you know, uh, what that's how that stack works and how that stack looks like, and then transform it uh, within the constraints of uh, blockchain and maybe even make it better. No, that's that's totally fair. And Eric, one of my last questions for you, is there anything that the centralized derivative exchanges have, like FDX or Deribit or others, that you guys wish you had? Or, or is there anything that they can do that you can't faster? I'm just trying to size up the differences from you guys from you know more of like a company perspective. So essentially, I think FTX has been always been innovative in terms of uh, creating markets, launching new markets, and the speed and efficiency of which I don't think uh, can be matched by any other like uh, centralized counterparts. I think really what we're doing here is that we we're trying to mobilize the power of the community. So we've built this uh, ecosystem so that people can create a market extremely easily, and we try to uh, create this incentive mechanism so that they are, they're actually rewarded by participating in the markets and actually um, contributing to the diversity of the uh, offering we have uh, on the platform. So what really comes down to is that, is the incentive mechanism enough? Will people actually participate in it given like what we map out for them? And another thing is just that there's a, uh, there's a direct incentive for FTX to create new markets, uh, whether it's uh, you know marketing effect, whether it's you know, uh, actual volume generation. But uh, for our case, it's really people wanting to experiment and people uh, with minimal cost, to be honest, uh, trying to compete against some of the you know other centralized offerings and trying to see if there's a leg up uh, against them. I would say, uh, from a perspective of uh, a market uh, market creator. 
That's so, cool, sorry, yeah. Eric, and, and just one more point on that, on your answer. Have you ever considered just starting Injective as an anonymous founder? Like, it seems like, especially when you're launching a decentralized exchange, which, you know, sometimes, most of the time gets the, you know, the crosshairs of regulators and stuff like yeah. that. And a lot of projects now are launched by anonymous founders. How did you and your partner think through that? Yeah, I think it was a little bit late by the time we started working on it. Um, so I actually, I'm always fascinated by like the anonymous founder uh, notion, but I would say generally for a proof of stake chain, it's very difficult. If I were to build like a kind of like a Ethereum based uh, uh, DeFi protocol, I would be very tempted to do uh, to do anonymously uh, these days. But that being said, because of you know recently what happened with Blue Kirby, because of recently what happened with uh, Chef Nomi, I think anonymous developers uh, really um, they really represent. Uh, misrepresent like kind of like the perception of uh, anonymous developers, and I think the community has uh, have this like constant fear around. Okay, uh, if this guy's anonymous and he's probably holding the most token amongst uh, most of the participants, um, you know, is he going to rock pull? And obviously, there are you know uh, unique, I would say outliers, and obviously this is not represented to the greater anonymous developer community. Um, I, I uh, and yeah, honestly, I have a lot of respect for uh, Molly Wintermute as well. I think that if I were to do this again, uh, basically, if I were to start now uh, doing a new startup, I might want to be. I, I would seriously consider being anonymous. I think uh, it's just one of the interesting, uh, you know, security features, to like personal security features, and also just in uh, just in general, kind of like the cyberpunk nature of things that really entices me. That's awesome, man. Yeah, no, you're totally right. I think that people, I mean, it's just, just feel way better investing in somebody that, you know, is real and, you know, has a reputation to lose and, and, you know, it feels human, but Eric, this has been awesome, man. I appreciate the crash course. Derivatives is, is never easy. So I appreciate you spawning it out for us and sharing your story. And where could people kind of find out more about Injective and potentially get involved with your, uh, your launch soon? Yeah, you can find the most updates on InjectiveProtocol.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Injective Labs and, Definitely stay tuned for the Launchpad sale. After that, we're going to have a lot more things coming out, along with a test net, the training competition, the incentivized test net, and eventually the mainnet. That's all going to happen uh, very, very soon. And just in general, also uh, check out our Telegram and join Injective. Awesome. Eric, thanks so much for your time, man. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon.